0: The way to think differently is to act differently and get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Welcome to the Unlearned Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals into actionable strategies you can use to think big, start small, and learn fast, and find your edge with excellence. Here's your host, Barry
1: O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearned Podcast. This episode I'm joined by Stefan Casrail, CEO of Upwork, one of the companies and platforms that is driving the future of work conversation. Now, Stefan joined the company initially as the head of product and somewhat reluctantly over a number of years has become the CEO. A ready experimenter, he's had to figure out both what to learn and unlearn and grow to become a great CEO and lead the organization. But he's got a system about how he tackles it.
0: I think one of the best ways for people to grow is to do things that are radically different from what they're comfortable with. In my life, I've run sales, I've run product, I've run engineering, I've had IC roles, I've had management roles where I manage a very large team of people with multiple layers of management. And every time the goal was to do something really different than really new. And yeah, it's kind of jumping off a cliff, hoping that there's a safety net at the bottom. But if you don't try and you don't take risks, then it's hard for you to really grow as a person and grow as a leader.
1: The future of work is one of the most topical, yet unknown and unclear conversations at the moment. And what's interesting in this podcast is we dive into how Upwork has created a distributed first culture to scale and succeed based on values alignment, the things that people value to help them understand, will they work well in this type of organization? Stefan and I debunked the myths of distributed agile. Many people told him it wasn't possible to do Agile unless you were co-located, and he shares some of the lessons they've learned from actually living and breathing and creating the company in this way. And finally, Stefan and I discuss his work as part of the World Economic Forum, where they're helping to shape an inclusive future for all, a boundless future where people from many diverse backgrounds can contribute. But before that, it's worth understanding a little more about Stefan's natural experimenting mindset and how he makes big bets by starting small.
0: I think you explained that really well in your first book, right, which is this idea of trying to be somewhat of the MVP approach for the bigger company, right? How do you think about things that are ideally somewhat incremental, and if they are not, they can be somehow rolled back, right? So if you're thinking a big bets, can you unwind it if it doesn't work? You know, in this particular case, it was pretty obvious how this would work accepted the role with the full knowledge of the board that I was a first-time CEO. I had never done that before. It wasn't clear if I was going to be successful or not. And therefore, plan B was if it didn't work, the board would hire another CEO. And ideally, I would still have a role within the company. And worst case scenario, I would have learned something new about myself. And I would have you know, looked for a job somewhere else. Well, but it sounds like you obviously had a great board who were happy to
1: give you feedback and help you grow into that role.
0: Yeah. And so I think that's fundamentally how you mitigate the risks, right? Is you don't go in there with your eyes completely closed, hoping for the best. I went in there with a lot of advice, talked to a lot of people externally, other CEOs and other companies to try to understand, like, what were my blind spots? Like, what did I not know? And what did I not know that I didn't know? Kind of thing. read a lot of books and... I think a lot of it was, you know, transparency and authenticity. I didn't go in there telling everybody, like, I know what I'm doing and I'm the best CEO in the world. I went in there saying, I know a lot about this company. I've been at the company for four years by then. You know, I've managed about half of the people in the company at one way or another, but I don't know the other half. And I think just having the candor and the openness to saying, this is what I feel comfortable with and this is what I'm, you know, really learning about and I'd like your feedback. Like, if I'm not doing it well, please tell me. And if you have advice for me because you come from a place where you know what you're doing, please tell me. And I would say that includes the Upwork management team. Most of the people that are on the leadership team today were my peers. Right? They were people that were already at the company back then. And they went from being my peers to being people that reported to me. And I really tried to make sure from day one that it wasn't a, oh, now I'm the boss. So I'm going to tell you how it is. It's much more like, hey, how can we collaborate to make sure that, yeah, I am the boss. At the end of the day, it rests on me as the CEO to make the right decisions, but I really value your input and I want you to give me feedback on what my blind spots are and how can I improve.
1: Yeah, I think it's such a powerful thing to role model those behaviors, especially when you're a CEO in a company of curiosity, of humility, of leveraging your team to make something better than you can achieve individually. It's super interesting that you sort of live those principles and mm-hmm. you see it really come to life in the company. So on your sort of own then trajectory, you've obviously gone from, you know, I know you're an engineer and you ran product teams, sales teams, you know, what were maybe one of the sort of key Moments where you had to unlearn along the way? Is there any
0: example that sort of springs to mind? So many. Yeah, I'm sure there are. Yeah, Yeah, so many. You know, the thing that makes this industry, I mean, the tech industry, so exciting is because it changes all the time. And I think a lot of people have this paradigm of learning new things. Like you know a lot of stuff and then you learn things on top of it. And the underlying assumption here is the foundation of what you know currently is the right foundation to build new knowledge on. And I think if you look at the number of highly successful founders that are first time founders, they've actually never worked before compared to a lot of established companies and established CEOs who tend to be older. And I think fundamentally, as we all become older, we tend to have many, many layers of things that we think are correct and we think we know, and we tend to build knowledge on top of it. And I think the young people who come in have no idea. They've never made mistakes. They don't know what's quote unquote impossible. And so they go straight for the wall and most of the time they hit the wall, but sometimes they realize the wall is not that strong and they go past through the wall and create something big and something, big, uh, something new. And so I think like probably the most important thing we have to do as technology leaders in this super fast moving world is to continue to not only learn through our life, but also unlearn through our life. And I would give you examples from Upwork. First one is for the first year when I was here, we were still operating on a waterfall model. So for people that don't know much about software development, the traditional way software was built in Silicon Valley and elsewhere was that product managers would figure out all of the answers. We were in charge of writing hundred page documents, like specs, you know, specifications that would describe every single piece of the software, usually with limited ways of talking to the customer because Customers don't really want to listen to 100 pages we'll of documents. Continue answers, right? We well, knew all the answers, right? We knew all the answers. <laughs> and so you write it down into a huge amount of detail. And then you send it over the world to engineering and say, go for it. Yeah. And engineering would read the document and try to understand, like, what on earth you were really trying to do. In many cases, they would not even follow the document because it was so unclear. And they would just go build something. And then at the very end of that food chain, the actual customer would finally see the product, typically a year later. And by then be like, what on earth are you building? Like this is not at all what I need as a customer. And so this development cycles tended to be really long. It was super frustrating for people. Part of the reason why I ended up running product and engineering was don't work, like many other companies, there was a huge amount of finger pointing. Right. So when the product failed in the field, which you know it's innovation, products fail all the time, the level of commitments and investment we would have made in this was pretty high by then. And everybody would be pointing fingers at everybody else. You know, the product team would say, well, we defined it right, but you engineering built it wrong. And engineering would say, no, we built it right, and you defined it wrong. And the customers would say, hey, guys, who cares (laughs) whose fault it is, but it's not working. And so we've switched from a waterfall model, which is the traditional way of doing it, to an agile model. And there's a huge amount of unlearning and bad habits that you need to remove. The first one being that you don't specify everything up front. Like you don't really know what the answer looks like. And so having much more of a what you and Eric Ries and Steve Blank and others have defined as an MVP, where you know minimum viable product, where you don't really know what it needs to look like in the end, but you have a hypothesis of where the general direction should be. And you try to iterate quickly. So launch something that is not great, but good enough to test the assumptions measure the output, get input from the customers, bring the customers into the discussion much early on, but as a result have much shorter specs, you know, and people don't even call them specifications anymore. They call them stories. And a story could be literally just one line, you know, as a client, I want to be able to click on the button to do why. And they tend to be, you know, much faster paced. And that is a totally different definition of the role for the product manager, the role for the designer, and the role for the developer. So that was a big unlearning and relearning for the company. I would say the addition to that that is very Upwork specific is we are promoting a future of work that is about people not being on site, people being able to work remotely, and people not having to commit to working just for this company and 40 hours a week forever, people that could come in on demand and leave on demand. By the time we switched to Agile, which was around 2012, there were tons of other companies that had gone through that journey or were going through that journey. And you could find trainers, like people that would come in and train your staff on how to become an Agile company, how to unlearn the bad habits and learn the new habits. But none of them would do it for remote teams. And so we had to, in fact, most of the trainers would tell us, no, Agile means co-located. Like Agile means everybody's in the same wall room because that's the only way you can innovate quickly. So what I love
1: about these stories is, like you're debunking a lot of this sort of prevailing thinking along the way, right? So waterfall development was the way you built software, right? Big design that was perfect, big development that was perfect, but the results obviously imperfect by the time to get to the customer. And, you know, Agile responded to that to try and improve the way software was built. But even now, again, you go into the Agile world and there's a strong belief that everybody must be co-located. Mm-hmm. And you're sort of debunking this again, not only with the way you work here internally, but as an industry, you're trying to show people that actually co-location isn't the only way to do these things. You know, what are some of the specifics you've learned in that space, I think?
0: Yeah, and I would say we're still learning. Five or six years in, you know, there's new findings all the time. And not only that, but we're no longer alone. You know, when we started doing this, people thought we were crazy, right? The idea that you could do agile development with a distributed team. First of all, distributed teams in general were like a non-starter for most companies. But agile with distributed teams in particular was, you know, considered to be an oxymoron. But you fast forward to today, there are dozens of companies that are operating the same way we're operating, many of whom are Upwork customers and doing it through Upwork. Some of them do it on their own. So we're now at the phase where there's a lot of best practice sharing across companies, You know, like how do we do it versus how does GitLab do it versus how does Automatic do it versus Mozilla versus the Wikimedia Foundation, et cetera, et cetera. Many multi-billion dollar companies, as well as very big nonprofits. And I would say probably the most important learning in all of this stuff is to just be open-minded about the changes. And when we hire people in the company who are very explicit on saying, this is how we're going to operate this business. We don't know exactly how it works. You've never done this before because it's new. But we're going to try to hire you based on whether you're excited about this or not. And sometimes we get great candidates coming from some of the best companies in the Bay Area who, you know basically, through the interview process, say, I don't think this is going to work for me. And that is, frankly, one of the best discussions to have, to say, great, you should go work somewhere else. But I would say when people come with an open mind and, you know, obviously we train people and we give people different tools to try to be successful in this model and, you know, give a lot of coaching, et cetera, et cetera. But when you hire the right types of people that have that growth mindset, that are excited about doing things differently and in a new way, and also see why we're doing it. You know, there's very specific reasons why you do this. You end up attracting better talent. You end up having people that are much more loyal because you're not competing against, you know, Google, Facebook, et cetera, et cetera, for local talent. And fundamentally, you're helping people that otherwise would be struggling. So you're actually doing something good for the company and good for society at the same time.
1: And when I hear you tell these stories, the thing I think you're very good at setting is sort of expectations around these things. And it's sort of a thing that lacks a lot. And it's really important for good experiment design as well. Like when you're defining the outcomes you're aiming for, what success is, in the Upwork context, in the remote work context, it creates a model for people. And how they fit into that model is important. And it's great to hear you share those things. Like when you're meeting people, you you set those expectations with them, what it will be like to work like this. And it's for some people, and it's not for other people. And it's not a harm, it's not a foul. It's like find this collaboration fit, like who are the right people to work in this way to benefit from it? It's interesting to hear how you've built that system into the way you bring people into the way you're working, the culture of being effective in this sort of model of work.
0: Yeah, and a lot of it is about culture. A few years ago, we defined the values for the company, and we had this as a complete grassroots type of exercise, meaning it wasn't me as the CEO saying, these are our values. This was us interviewing hundreds of people within the company, people that were on site, people that were remote, people that were full-time, people that were freelancers, and saying, what do we believe in? Like, what do you believe in that you think is important for the company? And we were really careful in finding values. What you don't want is a value that if you have it, you're a good person. And if you don't have it, you're a bad person. Because by definition, like everybody wants to be good. You want to have values that say, this company is not for everybody. Like, if you don't believe in these values, it doesn't make you a bad person. There are plenty of companies that don't believe in those values. And that's where you should go. But if you want to be here and you want to be successful, you should, you know, be excited about those values. And one of which is, you know, what we call embracing a boundless future of work, which is this idea that we are going to have a distributed team. We are going to allow people to work from anywhere in the world. We are going to have people with a very diverse background that come from different countries, different socioeconomic status. We have, you know, people that may have a physical or mental handicap, like people that are potentially very different from you. And we want you to be excited about engaging with people like that. And it's totally fine if you're not. It's not like it makes you a bad human being. You should go work at XYZ other company down the door which has totally different sets of values, and that's okay. Yeah, the values piece is,
1: is really exciting for me because for so many people, they have a very cynical view of values and company. Oh, yeah, we, let's do our value statement. And, but what's really powerful, what you're describing here, and I've seen in really high-performance companies too, is the values are a way to align people, much like you've described. What do you care about? Because the people that work here care about these things and it makes them successful. And values then drive behaviors. Mm -hmm. So what are the behaviors we're going to see that drive the values we want? If we're going to be distributed, transparency and visibility is very important. And what behaviors are you going to do to show people your work, show people you're available? And that all drives outcomes, right? Like that's what drives successful projects. If you've alignment between the values and the behaviors, it drives the outcomes. Mm -hmm. So it's really nice to hear how you're living and breathing that in here. Because in so many organizations, it's a cynical thing to do, but it's actually so important.
0: Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, every company has a culture, every company has values, whether they are the ones that are stated on the wall, or it's much more implicit and nobody quite knows what the true values are. That's TBD. I think a good exercise, if you really want to think about your mission, your vision, your values, is not to have it be the responsibility of the CEO or the board or HR or the comms team, but have you be a you know, company-wide effort where you find people that are excited to work on defining what those things are. And you start with a list of hundreds of different things. And obviously, you can't have your employees memorize a hundred different values. Plus, I mean, they're probably not all, you know, created equal. And so, boiling it down to the things that are truly important, really, truly matter in the company, and then hire based on those. You know, it is part of our interview process to not just look at, Whether functionally you're a good designer or a good developer or a good sales rep, but also does your way of looking at the world, does your way of making decisions, does your way of operating day-to-day align with the values that we have as a company? And then we measure people based on that. You know, the way you get promoted in the company is the what and the how. Like, yes, you need to have great outcomes. Like if the products that you launch don't produce the business impact that we want to have, or you're not hitting your numbers as a sales rep, you're probably not going to get promoted. But if you're doing the what, but you're not doing the how, meaning you're not living to the values of the company, you're also likely not to get promoted. Great. And it's great to see you using that accountability up and down the system. All right, so
1: let's dig in a little bit more about you, though. One of the things I was so excited to have you on the podcast for is because you're sort of this reluctant CEO. You've been an engineer, you've been a sales leader, you've been a product leader. You know, as you made some of these transitions, what was one
0: of the sort of big unlearning moments for you at an individual level? You know, there's been many, but I would say probably the biggest one was to realize that I was no longer the head of product and engineering. Throughout my life, I've seen CEOs who thought they were Steve Jobs. You know, they would do product slash design reviews to the minute detail of moving pixels around. And it worked extremely well for Apple and Steve Jobs. But it didn't work because Steve Jobs was that way. It worked because Steve Jobs was a genius. So it probably worked despite the fact that we behave <laughs> that way, not because of. And I... Because I had seen that experience on the receiving end of this, I was trying to be really clear that I wasn't going to be that kind of CEO and that I had incredibly skilled people to run product, to run design, to run engineering. And I should figure out what is my niche role in this. Like My role cannot be to second guess everything you do, because otherwise you're going to get demotivated, you're going to leave, and I'm going to struggle to find a replacement that is as committed, as excited, and as skilled as you are because I'm a micromanager and I'm basically trying to do your job, which prevents you from being able to do your job. And so it's easy to say, okay, here's what I'm not going to do. But then the question is, okay, what what am I really going to do? Because product does matter in a company, in a tech company, that's essentially what we bring to the world. And so I do need to have some level of input. I do need to be able to provide some amount of strategic direction. And so really discovering what is my new role Yeah. And I would say over the years, I've realized that there are places where you can learn to be a great sales leader. There are places where you can learn to be a great CMO and a great head of product. And there's obviously a lot of variance. You know, some CMOs are very creative and brand focused and other CMOs are very demand gen, growth hacking, analytical. So there's clearly a spectrum, but generally there are places where you can learn those skills. CEO role is very unique. I'm still looking for the CEO school.
1: I know. I was going to ask you, where did you go? I, you know, there isn't one. the hard knocks place, I think. Isn't it?
0: Yeah. And I would say particularly in the tech industry, because so many of the CEOs here are the founders. And so they've kind of built a company from the ground up around their strengths and their weaknesses You know, if you're Mark Zuckerberg and you're running Facebook, you know what you're very good at, which is product. And so you don't have a head of product. You have plenty of people that run the newsfeed and that run Instagram, et cetera, et cetera. And you also know that your weakness is everything else. And you hire Sheryl Sandberg and she runs everything else for you. But when there's an existing company and you as the newly promoted CEO, you're not going to go and say, okay, everybody's fired. I'm just going to rebuild the entire thing around me. So you inherit an organization that, I needed to figure out how to manage. And it was definitely a challenge. And as a result, there's not a huge amount of replicability. It's not that you can say like Upwork is going to be like company X. And I, as the CEO, I'm going to do exactly like, you know, this person who's the CEO. And you, as the head of product, you're going to do exactly what that head of product is. And so there was a lot of iteration and figuring it out. And I would say hits and misses. You know, it hasn't been easy the whole time. Well, it's so interesting to hear that insight. And I think it's such a great analogy as you
1: describe it like founders grow companies, recognize their strengths and sort of backfill their weaknesses with great people, as you described. At least the good ones do. Well, the good ones, thank you, yeah. You know, to hear this again from you is growing into these roles and having an established team and finding out where these sort of inflection points or these tipping points are, what helps you recognize where you needed to sort of step up and where you needed to step back?
0: Yeah, well, I think feedback, you know, just having very honest relationships with the rest of the team and asking like, you know, am I being helpful here or am I actually just creating churn and confusion and slowing everybody down? I think, you know, the other thing that I've learned over the years, and this is something that John Donahoe, who used to run eBay and now run ServiceNow, he told me that many, many years ago, he said, early on in your career, you'll have one mentor. You'll have the one person who's almost like a semi-god because he or she is better at just about every dimension than you. But as you grow, older and more senior in your career, you'll realize nobody's perfect. So instead of having one person that you aspire to be, you end up discovering that you can learn a little bit from many, many people. And they don't even have to be people that are more senior to you. They can be people that are your peers and they can be people that report to you. And I learn from our team every single day. And one of the ways I learn is to be able to say, guys, if you don't agree with me, Tell me if I'm messing it up, like, let me know so that I can get better at what I do. It's such
1: a powerful system you described there. And it's one that resonates with me massively too, as well. As you're trying to grow your business or grow yourself, you know, there's people that you can learn from. There's gaps that you have. And I think what's really powerful is when you create that system around you of people who will give you feedback, people who will challenge you, people who will encourage you, people who understand domains you don't understand, people who are, as you say, don't have to be senior than you. You know, I've learned so much from just sitting down with someone straight out of university or not even in university. And they're using new technologies like serverless that I have no conflict of what it does. And they're building apps in, in five minutes. And I'm just like, wow. I think that's a really important point. And, and it sort of ties back to your, what I see is this constant curiosity in you of trying to find what's new and how it leverages it and how it impacts me and, I think that's a great characteristic to have, especially if you're trying to grow these types of companies.
0: Yeah, you know, we're in an industry like sometimes I hear people say this is a big risk, and we're in an industry where not taking big risks is a big risk. If you don't move, if you stay in the same place, people will pass you by, like no tomorrow. And so, you know, the growth mindset for the company and for the individuals in the company is almost a precondition to survival. You know, it's not an Option to not do anything. You know, we're not in a space where we're growing at the rate of GDP and more or less, you know, we might as well not do too much because it's going to happen one way or another. We're in a space where if you're not growing in the 20, 30% or more, and you're not constantly innovating and understanding what the new customers need because they're different from the existing customers, et cetera, et cetera, progressively you'll regress to the mean. You'll grow at the rate of GDP and then From a shareholder value standpoint, it's not great. But I would say, even more importantly, from the standpoint of fulfilling our mission, we're never going to get there if we're not growing really fast. And so we don't have a choice. Like, we can't just do the same thing in 2020 as what we're doing in 2019, as what we did in 2018. Like, we need to run fast. And when you run fast, you make mistakes. And, you know, I wouldn't say, you know, the old Facebook motto of move fast and break things. I think by now the world has realized that it creates too many bad consequences. Like, you can't be, reckless about it. You need to be responsible about it. But we have to make choices. We have to make bets. And those should be educated bets, but they need to be risky bets, because otherwise we're never going to get to where we need to be. Great. Safe and fast. Interesting. Go fast without breaking things, ideally. I think so. So this is,
1: I think, leads us nicely onto your sort of the industry perspective you Mm -hmm. have. Not only are you leading light in the future of workspace and Upwork, sort of challenging that hold those paradigms and those perceived assumptions you also do a lot of work at an international level where you're involved in the world economic forum and you know think tanks that are actually really thinking about how does this impact society at mm-hmm. a sort of broader level yeah so from that perspective what are some of the things you think maybe we need to start on learning about what you're seeing the preconceptions assumptions and norms of what the future
0: works really going to look like yeah in, Yeah. And there's probably two things. I mean, if you think about like the big uh, forces that are shaping the economy and the labor market in particular, right? I mean, there's a handful of things. One is, you know, the rise of automation technologies and whether that's RPA or AI or robotics and all of that stuff, which creates new jobs, but also displaces existing jobs. And and brings fear. And, And there's a lot of fear associated with this. Second one is I would say, beyond just automation, an acceleration in the change of technology, what what the World Economic Forum calls the fourth industrial revolution, right? Things are just moving faster and faster. And so whatever you know today is only half as valuable five years from now. So you're going to have to relearn much faster than you have in the past. And then the third one is increasingly this geographic mismatch between where jobs are being destroyed and jobs are being created and between where people want to live and between where, you know, people are being asked to live. And that also is creating, you know, huge distortions. And, you know, you see it in, not to get into politics, but you see it into how people are voting in the U S on the coastal areas that are doing well versus in the middle of the country. You see it with Brexit in the UK and you see it in other countries in Europe as well. And so those three forces are forcing us to change, how we operate the labor market. And I would say there are two fundamental changes that need to happen. One is around education itself. You know How we learn, how often do we learn. The old paradigm was, which was created for the first industrial revolution, right? the old paradigm is you go to school until you're somewhere between 18 and 20 something. And then you might receive some on-the-job training, but not that much. And fundamentally, you're going to be re- reusing the same skills for the rest of your career. And that worked really well 50 years ago. It makes absolutely no sense today, right? So we need to shift to a model of lifelong learning. And frankly, you need to probably reskill yourself every few months, and not in a huge way, not like a big bang, I'm going to go back to school for four years kind of way, in a very incremental way. But if you do small increments you know, every few months for your entire career, you're going to be ahead of the curve compared to people that are not, and ahead of the curve compared to machines.
1: So what's very, you know, resonates with me as you tell these stories, it's something I see a lot, not only in the work I do, right? Like training people, getting them to sit in a room and just tell them information and expect them to change their behavior. And that never works. I often say you have to act your way to a new culture. You have to do things. And then the second part of what you're describing for me is you're trying to like build this doing muscle up. Like you're encouraging people to constantly try new things. Mm-hmm. Build this skill of trying new things, not necessarily being good at the thing that you're trying, but actually just trying new things. If you can build that capability in yourself and lead by doing things differently, not trying to think differently, but actually act differently, that's when you can start to see these profound effects. And it's something I see a lot in the work I do is the people who are just willing to keep trying new things and systematically try new things. And do new behavior to drive new thinking, new insight. Mm-hmm. Those are the ones that will accelerate, those ones that can cope with change. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, if there's one quote unquote meta skill that everybody needs to acquire, and I think leaders in companies can help people acquire them, educators in the public sector can help acquire them, is how do you shift from what you said, which is fear of change, to a culture of curiosity of change. Like fundamentally, if we resist the change as human beings, we're doomed because the change will be imposed on us. If we embrace the change and are curious about it, we get to shape the future. This idea that the future is happening to us is a complete misconception. Like we get to shape what the future looks like, but that requires us to get involved, to actually say we want to be part of the change. We want to impact it in a positive way. If we're putting our hand in the sand thinking, oh, automation is going to happen no matter what, then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like we won't invest in reskilling of ourselves and people around us. And as a result, when technology does happen, we'll all be unemployed because we won't have the necessary skills. So that is probably one of the biggest, you know, learnings that need to happen is how do we think about learning, if you will. The second one, which is probably the one that Upwork is, you know, the most directly involved in is this idea that, you need to move the worker to where the work is. And that has been the paradigm for the last 200 years. You know, it's the story of the gold rush. It's the story of the Industrial Revolution. It's the story of the Dust Bowl. It's the history of mass migrations within the U.S. and, you know, from international into this country. And that is a broken paradigm. I mean, that's what leads to all of the drama we're hearing now in San Francisco and New York and in other places where the cost of living has become unbearable, even for the tech employees, let alone for the, the people that are not in tech and not getting paid the big bucks. But the cost of living here rises faster than wages could ever rise. And meanwhile, you go to Stockton, which is you know 150 miles away from here, and the city is bankrupt. And it's not because you can't find skilled people in Stockton. I mean, they have a university that teaches people just you know the same skills that you learn in San Jose State University, if you will. But there's no jobs there. And so this idea that everybody should move away from Stockton, where it is very affordable to live and people if you want to make a living there, they have their communities there. But the idea that you have to move from there to San Francisco is a complete dead end. And so we, as responsible leaders, we need to unlearn this you know, ingrained behaviors we have that everybody needs to work for us in that big office tower that Salesforce is building, put 50,000 more people in San Francisco next year. It's crazy. It's not going to end well for society. It's not going to end well for the economy. And fundamentally, a lot of the jobs that we're creating in the economy don't need to be done on site. And by the way, the people that truly need to be on site tend to be paid less. And therefore, it's even harder for them to afford to be on site. So the whole idea that highly paid workers who don't have to live in the city live in the city, and lesser paid workers who can't afford to live in the city have a two-hour commute to come to work every day is insane. Like, why are we doing this to ourselves and we need to fix this? I
1: don't know. I don't know. But that's why I'm excited to talk to you and hear some of the things you're trying to do in that space. So as we look forward then, you know, what are some of the things you're excited about and some of the shifts you think
0: may happen? I think the thing that I'm the most excited about is that leaders are starting to think about this notion of inclusive growth instead of growth at all costs, right? I mean, the idea that... It's all about shareholder value. It's all about short-term profits. It's all about doing the right thing for me, 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 me right now. It's very clear that it's you know it's the prisoner's dilemma. It's the tragedy of the commons. It's whatever you want to call it, but fundamentally optimizing for me right now in the short term, if everybody does it, does not add to good outcome for the economy as a whole and for society as a whole. Like ultimately, if everybody's left behind, we won't have customers. If we don't have customers, our shareholders are not going to be happy. Like. Everybody needs to take a bigger view of, you know, where the world is going and to have a more proactive role in shaping it in a way that we think is, you know, fair and just and efficient for society. And I'm encouraged to hear a lot more people having that discourse today. And I would say specifically as it relates to the labor market is find people that are underserved by the labor market today. You know, the only place where I would agree with our current president on the labor market is when back during his campaign, he said the unemployment numbers of the BLS are bullshit. They are bullshit. It's not 3% of the workforce that is unemployed. When you look at the labor participation rate, which the BLS also reports, but nobody ever talks about, there are 20 to 30% of adults between 25 and 50 that are not working at any point in time. They're not counted as unemployed because they're not actively looking for work anymore. But these are people that have a physical or mental handicap People that have care duties that make it impossible for them to have a traditional full-time job, but might still be interested in having something else. And people that just live in a part of the country where, because there's no jobs, they just give up on us. And we just can't give up on them. You know, it's just not a good outcome for the world or for society to have hundreds of millions of people that are either unemployed or underemployed. The most scarce resource we have on the planet today is not oil or CO2 or any of that stuff, it's human brains. And if we underutilize human brains, all of these issues we have, you know, the United Nations SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, they require lots of smart people to take big, bold risks to actually go after them. And the biggest tragedy we have right now is there are millions and millions of people who are raising their hands saying, I'd like to have a more interesting job. I'd like to have more impact. And because of the rules of engagement where we want to see that you went to Yale and we want to see that you want to live in New York City and we want to see that you're willing to work 80 hours a week... There's a ton of people that just don't meet that profile and they could contribute a lot more to the economy and a lot more to society if we as leaders are willing to change the rules. And
1: it's a great example that you shared there. And then the the nuggets that sort of jump out to me as well is the metrics you look at. There's vanity metrics and then there's actionable metrics. And it's very easy for people to talk about low employment figures, Mm -hmm. but that's not really measuring the outcomes that we're aiming for. So. Thank you for highlighting that and bringing that to life in a very real way. And it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. You know, my big takeaways from this are I'm actually much more hopeful for the future of work. It's exciting to hear that people are starting to recognize that the current paradigm is a dead end. It's leading to a dead end, as you describe. And it's great to see that we're building these companies that can be inclusive, that can move uh, the work to the people rather than the people to the work which is a super interesting concept and thanks for sharing it. Thank you for the opportunity.